What a beautiful day to be alive. Welcome to the You Can Do It Too podcast. Yes, you can do it too. My primary mission in this podcast is to empower minority youths and young professionals around the globe to imagine beyond any limits and strive to be their best self. Who am I? I am many things. I am a son, a brother, a husband, a friend. I'm an engineer. I'm a medical student at the University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical School, Hooken. Well, if you ask me to be specific, I'm a problem solver. I'm a critical thinker. I would love to see you reach your full potential. Yes, you. You have what it takes. I'm rooting for you. What an amazing day to be alive. <laughs> First of all, thank you so much for your time mm-hmm. to sit here with me today and have an amazing conversation. You're an amazing person, so I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> wow, that's a big start. Thank you, and I will try to live up to that. It's been a crazy Sunday with uh, so many things going on. First of all, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's, I think, two weeks before a big final, mm-hmm. so trying to memorize everything, understand everything, you know, typical <laughs> med student weekend life. We, we've been in here for like three, three, four weeks and mm-hmm. we're feeling, I mean, not four weeks, uh, two months, two to three months yeah. and we have about at least 10 weeks in. Mm-hmm. We have had our first exam, but it's still crazy. Like I know. It's crazy that time is going by so fast. Yeah. But like for other people, like school just started. <laughs> yeah. I remember we had this big thing with other uh, majors around around the campus and uh, it was crazy how they just met each other and we already like knew each other. I know, we already did our exam, like we had already like been through so much together. Wow. How's Austin treating you? Have you been in Austin before or this is your first time? No, I went to UT. You went to UT? Okay. Man, I forgot about that. I forgot about that. That's amazing. Is there anything that you are grateful for today? grateful for grateful for um i'm grateful for the weather <laughs> it's a nice weather i'm not gonna it's lie. so pretty and i think it makes a big difference mm-hmm. like on my mental health yeah like if it's bright and sunny it gives me more motivation mm-hmm. to like wake up be more productive for the day that's amazing yeah that's amazing one thing definitely is not humid and uh being that we are in inside mm-hmm. all the time having these big windows and knowing that it's sunny out there kind of make everything better. I know. This building is so pretty. We get all the windows with the light shining through. That's amazing. Let's jump right into it. So, first of all, uh, where did you grow up? Um, So, I was born in Los Angeles, California, Mm -hmm. but I moved to Houston when I was five. Mm -hmm. So, I grew up in Houston, Texas. Do you have a lot of siblings? Yes, I'm the oldest. Okay. I have a younger sister who's three years younger, younger than I am. And then my little brother, he's a junior Okay. in high school. That's, am- that's amazing. That's a lot of pressure. So you have to deliver <laughs> in a way. <laughs> yeah, being the oldest in, in any family I think is hard, but like more so in, a, in an Asian family. Mm-hmm. You have lots of expectations and yeah. responsibilities. So. Talking about that, what was growing up like, uh, especially in LA, where 
the culture you have the culture of uh, people know LA as a place of uh, distraction right <laughs> but I, I feel like many people who grew up there really don't care about all that stuff right people who go to LA say oh wow this is amazing but mm-hmm. people who are from LA really say oh, I, I don't go there I don't need to go there like what was growing yeah. up in LA like to be honest, I don't remember too much of it. Yeah. I do remember going to the beaches okay. a lot, um, going to Universal Studios, walking everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very relaxed mm-hmm. environment from what I remember. Mm-hmm. My parents, so they, were, they got married. Mm-hmm. And then my dad was doing his PhD in Austin. And my mom was getting her doctorates in music in California. So they were separated. Mm-hmm. So I was with my mom. Oh, wow. So that was kind of different, like not having a dad around mm-hmm. uh, for the first few years of my life. Were but, they also born here? Did they grow Oh, born no. In so they were born in Korea. Okay. They Both of met. them. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. How did they meet? They ever, they ever told you? Uh, yeah, so they met at UT because they were both getting their masters wow. in Austin, and my mom, I think she was doing like a winter piano recital mm-hmm. for her like final exam, mm-hmm. and my dad happened to like come into the concert hall mm-hmm. and just like listen because it's free for UT students. Mm-hmm. And according to my mom, he like fell in love At with her sight. performance, <laughs> and um, that's how they got to know each other, and then they got married. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. That is a great story. <laughs> and I guess the the reason they came to the U.S. is education, mm-hmm. the usual education, yeah. and they came at a younger age, I would say. And so I think my dad came here after his military service. Mm-hmm. You have like a two-year mandatory military service in Korea. Mm-hmm. So after he finished If you are that, a citizen there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So he was a little older mm-hmm. um, when he came here to do his uh, master's and PhD. Mm-hmm. My mom had graduated from the university in, in Korea. Wow. And she wanted to like go abroad to do her master's. Um, and she got a full scholarship here, so that's why she came. That's amazing. And the military thing, is it only for uh, guys or also for ladies They have to it's do it? It's for guys. Okay. That makes sense. That's amazing. So you were born out of love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah, but we were separated. Um, how hard? Do you remember how hard that was for, for, for you guys growing up? I mean, of course, they were together and you knew yeah. they were together, but it's still... I had a similar experience growing up where mm-hmm. uh, during those formative years, my dad was in uh, Germany doing some, uh, he went there and he got a job trying to help out the family back home, mm-hmm. uh, working as a, I mean, just doing internships basically to get more, as a physician, mm-hmm. right? And uh, he ended up, after three years, he was like, I'm done, I need to get closer to my family. Yeah. But I remember those times, I'm, I'm closer to my mom in terms of just, uh, being comfortable with her than my dad because of that little gap of three years that my dad wasn't there. How was that for you? Do you? Hundred percent. Yeah. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't like I felt empty because my mom and I we lived with our aunt, mm-hmm. so she's my mom's younger sister. Mm-hmm. So I still had two people taking care of me. Um, and being with me they were both very busy though so it was kind of 
hard to find time with my mom. And then even when we moved to Houston, mm-hmm. because my dad got um, his job here first, even then they were so busy, they didn't have time to spend with me. Yeah. So I've always seen my dad as like the strict fatherly figure. Mm-hmm. Even to this Working day, hard, have things yeah, to do, you yeah. know. They're doing the responsibility, but you still, I mean, as kids, you want that connection, that playfulness. But with all the things that they have, I feel like as a responsibility or maybe pressure, mm-hmm. sometimes they feel like they cannot serve on that side and just more focus on the things that brought them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think all immigrant children can kind of relate. Mm-hmm. Like, I talk about this with my sister all the time. I feel like my family provided a very safe like financial security for for me and my siblings mm-hmm. and I'm so grateful at the same time I think we missed out on having those childhood memories like childhood picnics mm-hmm. and just like daddy daughter dates you know like I feel like we didn't what have is that, that? <laughs> like going to picnics you yeah. know like going on bike rides we didn't have that sort of those memories mm-hmm. but I think my parents tried their best in their own way to make sure we were well provided for Mm -hmm. we didn't have to worry about you know money we just had to focus on school so different but you know they loved us and and we loved them that's amazing no definitely the love is there i mean there are things that you miss but kids are smart right Mm -hmm. you they, they they will definitely watch what's going on around them and they will know the people, I mean, they, they notice the things that our parents do, like the hard work that they're doing, mm-hmm. all the challenges that they have to face, and mm-hmm. we love them for that. We love them for having to go through that so we don't have to go through it. Yeah. That's great. So your parents, they all definitely were highly educated people who value education mm-hmm. a lot. And uh, how did they, what was that atmosphere for you growing up? Do you feel like you had, was education an expectation? You needed to go out there and really <laughs> be the best? Or it was mm-hmm. like, uh, if you want to, you go ahead and do it. If not, it's your own business. I think it was always a standard. Mm-hmm. For my dad, he was more like, do the best that you can, mm-hmm. and if your best isn't enough, you know, don't be too upset over it, just just try. My mom, on the other hand, she was a, a little bit more watchful <laughs> over what I did. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, looking back now, I'm so grateful that yeah. she did. Like, all the those competitions and all the things that she's helped me excel at like she's been there every step of the way like she taught me Korean mm-hmm. like how to read write speak Korean at a very young age um, I got to play piano because of her I've learned so much mm-hmm. but at the same time it was very much they had high expectations mm-hmm. and I had to meet them mm-hmm. but I think maybe middle school high school it was when I realized I wanted to study for myself for my own future not mm-hmm. for anybody else mm-hmm. And so I think that's when I started kind of changing how I like thought about school and education, mm-hmm. kind of prioritizing that over everything else. That's a hard one. Uh, the idea of first of all about your about your dad, right? The instilling that kind of emotional support, I feel like is very tough, right? To mm-hmm. make uh, to to build that emotional support w- with your kid and make them feel comfortable in 
being comfortable in failing, right? Mm -hmm. Which is very important. Tell them that yes, of course, make help them believe that they should try their best, but at the end of the day, no matter what, if they fail, they're still gonna be okay. Mm -hmm. It's a big lesson that many people don't get to pass that on their kid. Yeah. Like, what are some ways that you feel like he did that? He helped you? I think, say that I got a bad grade. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't berate me. Mm -hmm. Like, why did you get this grade? Mm -hmm. He would ask me things like, how did you feel about it? Mm -hmm. How do you think you did? Wow. You know, what could you do differently next time? And kind of walking through that process of explaining how I felt about it mm -hmm. versus, you know, why didn't you do better? Mm -hmm. I think kind of helped. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I think I set such high expectations for myself. I didn't want to disappoint them. Mm -hmm. I think my dad was trying his best to try to console me. But at the end of the day, all I saw was that like B or something, and I would just feel so terrible about mm -hmm. it. So I wouldn't like come out. I wouldn't come out of my room. I'd feel terrible. Oh, wow. And then as I got older, I feel like I coped better. Mm -hmm. But definitely as a child, I remember trying to always be the best so that mm -hmm. I didn't disappoint them. I always made them wow. happy. That's definitely a very specific uh, characteristics. That's also hard to gain. I feel like. I mean, people say, oh, uh, many kids have that characteristic because their parents don't show them, uh, don't appreciate their effort, and they're always trying to prove something, mm -hmm. right? But I feel like there are some kids who just are born with that, the idea of wanting to be the best, mm -hmm. wanting to do their best, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a level of maturity to it, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like when they get to a point like where they know that this is this is not i'm not doing this for someone i'm doing this for myself mm -hmm. and i want to do the best that i can that kind of empowerment is not easy to have like mm -hmm. where did when did you feel like that was instilled in you like how did that come in oh that's a hard question um oh you were just born with it <laughs> <laughs> definitely when i was younger mm -hmm. i saw how hard it was for my parents to make a living and provide for us mm -hmm. so anything that made them happy i wanted to do mm -hmm. and part of that was getting good grades and you know like doing well in school mm -hmm. and then at one point i think it was in middle school we have like the special leadership uh program mm -hmm. for selected eighth graders and i think that's when i really wanted to kind of like rise above mm -hmm. and like be a mentor like help other people like have those leadership char characteristics um because I, I love teaching i love leading so i think that's when kind of the shift mm -hmm. happened i see yeah and then ever since then it was like how can i further myself how can i improve myself mm -hmm. it's always like a battle against myself versus like comparing with other people mm -hmm. But it's hard, you know, like in high school and college, you're surrounded by other people. So there's always competition. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in terms of mental health, it's always better to not 
compare yourself to other people and figure out what you're lacking and how you can improve yeah. and make progress. And I feel like many people don't realize that. It's a lifelong journey. Uh, yeah, it's a lifelong journey, but definitely that's a tough lesson that not everyone have the opportunity to learn uh, early. I feel like if you learn that early on, you're going to save yourself from so many headaches. Mm -hmm. I know there are so many people, uh, even at UT, when I was at UT, that I mentor, talk to, and the biggest issue is the fact that they were comparing themselves yeah. with someone else, running someone else's races, mm -hmm. race, right? Yeah. When did you realize that medicine was for you? I think I always wanted to do medicine, mm -hmm. fairly young. I was always interested in science and oh, the wow. human body. So I decided to go to a, a high school mm -hmm. that kind of specialized in health science. Mm -hmm. It's a magnet program in Houston. When did that exposure came though, the, the idea of science? Because your dad mm -hmm. was, in, was an, ingen he was an engineer, engineer, right? And your mom was music. Mm -hmm. Like, when did it come? Like, how do you know that there's a possibility? Honestly, I think it was my grandparents. Mm -hmm. At some point, mm -hmm. I remember getting a birthday present, mm -hmm. and it was a, a stethoscope, like an, a real stethoscope, not a kitty one, wow. when I was like seven or eight. And I think that's like, that was the, the spark. Yeah. And I realized I love science. I love the human body and how everything works. I thought it was so interesting. I always did well in my science classes. So I was like, you know why not and I would read up on on like doctors and their their journey to medicine and always like started with science what age was that Ooh. <laughs> like middle school okay middle school. Um, yeah I remember like dressing up as a doctor for like our career day mm -hmm. like in fifth grade or sixth grade um, and so I like volunteered at hospitals to mm -hmm. try to like see doctors more and I love their white coat and their <laughs> charisma and like the presence that they had and yeah. you know they were the center of like talking to patients and treating them I thought it was amazing mm -hmm. so I applied to the health science high school I got accepted and that's I guess when my formal journey began at this high school you had to learn like medical terminology you took special health science classes all four years mm -hmm. So as you got older, you got more exposure mm -hmm. um, to hospitals, like rotations and clinics. And I think that's when I really kind of connected with medicine and mm -hmm. felt like this was for me. This was going to be my lifetime career. Mm -hmm. um, so with college, you know, you do the typical, you know, shadowing and um, volunteers. Mm -hmm. And I met a lot of really good physicians. Wow. Yeah, and you know they all inspired me differently with their different stories. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, they're all helping people. They're always learning and kind of helping each other mm -hmm. to do what's best for the patient. And I was like, that's amazing. Well, if that's if there's one thing that I want to do for the rest of my life is is this job. Wow, well, that's amazing. That, that's amazing. So, what did you study in? Uh, in undergrad. So I studied public health with a focus in population sciences. That's amazing. Wow. So you, you had that experience in high school mm -hmm. and you came to college at UT. Yeah. Uh, 
first of all, I mean, UT is 50,000 people, right? Uh, it's so many people, right? How did you adapt? And uh, of course, some people have more challenges than others, but how did you find your community here? How did you adapt? How hard was it for you? I came from a very small high school. Mm -hmm. So I was really excited to come to UT. Okay. Like lots of students, lots of opportunities here. Mm -hmm. And I think the way I found community was by doing things that interested me. Mm -hmm. So within those groups, I found my people. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I just really thrived at mm -hmm. UT because I just kind of went for it. Mm -hmm. um, it was difficult because there's so many students you wonder can you find like a close-knit community of friends mm -hmm. but I think I ended up finding them you know in different places like whether mm -hmm. it's research or you know club activities I found people that I really admired and mm -hmm. respected so I that's, really that's great time. one of the things that many people struggle with when they come to uh, school college or UT specifically but college in general I mean they get the advice of you need to be open-minded and, and just explore right which is a good thing which is a necessary first step but I feel like that first step sometimes stop people from following their desires right you, think, you say you, you follow their interests right Many people come and get into many organizations that they are not interested in and they struggle getting out of them and focusing on their interests. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes you get lost in that because you are just doing things to complete things basically instead of, uh, I, I think one of the, thi one of the biggest things uh, that can be very useful in uh, building your community in college but also finding what you are passionate about is identifying that and following that. If it doesn't exist in that college, you can build it. Mm -hmm. I remember me, none of the organizations that was here at UT around me interested me, mm -hmm. right? And I, I decided to go and start my own organizations and bring in people uh, that share the same passions and just be work on that together instead of just being in an organization where I'm just there because I need someone to uh, I need to be. I need to add that in my resume and stuff yeah. like that. So it's definitely interesting and it's important. I'm rushing because I want to get to that big, uh, your big experience in Liberia, right? Uh, so you came into college knowing that you're gonna go to medical school, right? Mm -hmm. You you had all the. I mean, what was your plan to come, graduate, and then go directly? Yeah. Like, how did that change? Talk a little bit about that story. Oh, um, so I've always been, uh, like I had my whole path laid out. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm going to go to college four years, then I'm at med school four years, mm -hmm. graduate. Like I had this whole timeline mm -hmm. set out. And then I think some point junior year, mm -hmm. I had one of my public health professors talk about his time in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. And he was there, uh, I think, for some international health organization and he loved it like he was telling us all these stories and I was like oh I wish I could do that like if I had time I would if I had two years to spare then I totally would and I didn't realize how important gap years are to like 
to grow, to build experience mm -hmm. outside of academics and to grow as a person. Until I, I began talking to this professor and telling him, I wish I could do that. Mm -hmm. And he was like, why don't you? Like, mm -hmm. you have time, you're young. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the time for you to experience this mm -hmm. before going into medical school for the next four years and then doing residency for mm -hmm. however long. And, and you have to go talk to your parents. <laughs> Mama, dude, that's a whole, that's a whole Easter egg on itself. But um, we talked about different organizations mm -hmm. that were available for mm -hmm. like public health service. Mm -hmm. And my professor mentioned the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Let me read about it. And I really loved the mission of the Peace Corps because you're immersing yourself into a community of different culture, mm -hmm. different language, and they focus heavily on integration because you can't do anything without building relationships and trust with, with the, the natives. And so for three months, you learn the culture, you learn the dialect, um, and you build these relationships so that you are able to do your own project mm -hmm. with the help of your community members. Peace Corps always emphasize that it's not you that's doing the change. You're there to work with the people mm -hmm. so that you can bring long-term change together. You are accompanying. Instead of exactly. providing the solution, you are empowering the people you are finding there mm -hmm. to provide the solution. And you stay in place until you make sure that the solution is there. Exactly. And even after we leave, mm -hmm. we hope that whatever project and goals that we had are sustainable mm -hmm. because it can't be like a short-term project. It mm -hmm. has to be there long after we're gone. Mm -hmm. Um, and the only way to do that is empower the community members, like you said. Mm -hmm. So I really love the mission of the Peace Corps until I found out it was 27 months. Mm. I was like, that's a long time. <laughs> I was like, let's apply and see what happens. Um, it's very competitive, the application process. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know if I was going to get it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, let's try it. And then I applied mm. and I got it. Yeah. And I was like, I have to go. I have to do like, it. This is my calling. Wow. So my parents, they were not too thrilled <laughs> about it. I feel like every, I mean, yeah. many people have the similar yeah. stories in terms of struggles between uh, trying to follow their calling and explaining that to their loved ones, mm -hmm. right? And one thing that is certain is the fact that the people that love you, they really love you. They don't stop you from things because they don't love you. Mm -hmm. They stop you from things because they don't want you to see her. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. But they forget that sometimes to have your own identity to go and really break through, have your own breakthrough, you may need to get hurt a little bit. Right? And uh, it's just a dynamic. Talk a little bit about that. Like, how, what were some of the challenges? What were the reasoning? Um, I think going to West Africa mm -hmm. in itself, it's just you know big question mark. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Um, they were worried about the dangers, the the differences. Why twenty seven months? It's mm -hmm. so long. You're so far from home. And Liberia, I mean, that was in 2019, right? Mm -hmm. And Liberia in 2015-14, like, was one of the places that, that had Ebola outbreak, Ebola right? Outbreak. Yes. 
and uh, I mean there are still things going on so mm-hmm. I'm sure they were worried about all of that so yeah. go ahead I mean they were just researching Liberia on Google and every negative news article they were taking pictures and sending it to me being like this is dangerous you don't have to do this ultimately I decided to go mm. and that created a very large rift mm. in my family mm. my mom was very upset mm-hmm. and she and I stopped talking mm. um, for like two two and a half years uh, by the way you want to talk about this you don't have to oh no I'm okay I'm okay, okay. We're, we're okay now okay but during my service the entire time of my service I didn't have uh, my parents blessing and support so although I was following my dreams and I was doing very well like I was integrating well I was doing all of these health projects and I was teaching I was having a great time but when I would go home I would feel like this emptiness because I can't share all of this with my my parents so that was that was hard and physically mentally outside I was doing great Mm -hmm. but what I was in my own space I was never happy like I was always thinking always thinking always worried always wishing I was talking to my parents and that was very hard until we evacuated mm. March 2020 I think because of COVID mm-hmm. and I think that hit the hardest because I felt like I couldn't return back home because of this rift I had with my mom mm-hmm. so I kind of like stayed by myself that's when I went to California to do research and nonprofit. Wow. And I think after about two and a half years, I reached back out to my mom and we had closure. Um, and things things are a lot better now. Wow. The, the bond between a mother and a kid is powerful. It is. It, it, it's big, right? And that love is strong and uh, define, I mean, define that to go and chase your dream an uncertain dream mm-hmm. right because many people don't realize like you were tr- you had a vision of medical school of things that you wanted to do but you were telling yourself I need this experience to be the person I want to be mm-hmm. for this bigger thing many people cannot see that roundabout way of getting to your bigger thing they say why don't you just go here right yeah. And your your mom, someone who left, like, wherever she came from to come here and really push toward something that she believed in, mm-hmm. right? And she worked hard at it. But even if she had that experience, it was hard for her to connect with what's going on, right? You're trying to go to medical school, but why do you need to go to the other side of the world yeah. to get that experience? But it takes so much power takes so much power and so much uh, grit to defy, not defy that love, but to let not that love that you have for her stop mm-hmm. you from getting that big dream, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, of course, I know you talked about something that was going on in your head, but what do you feel like? Where did you get that tenacity, that perseverance to just 
this is my dream because many people do not have that there are so many people who are not following their dream because they are afraid not not just for what people think but for having that certainty mm -hmm. like for you it wasn't like oh i'm going to medical school or i'm going to to go do to do this big job you're like i'm gonna go try this experience and that experience all it gives you is just experience mm -hmm. there was no money there was nothing oh. and there was a lot of risk mm -hmm. right but you still decided to go through it how did you do it i think i realized i needed growth mm. as a person and i've been living in this very safe bubble my whole life mm -hmm. and by talking with my professor and taking these global health classes mm -hmm. i realized there's a whole world out there where you know we read about ebola we read about zika mm -hmm. but in those countries that's, that's happening for real mm -hmm. like it's affecting their everyday life mm -hmm. you know like children don't have enough to eat, they don't have money to go to school, like it's the reality for them. Whereas for me, it's just reading words on a paper. So I was like, I really want to use my public health degree mm. and all the knowledge and experience I learned at UT and kind of use that in a way that I know I can, that mm. I only can, um, to kind of give back, learn about this other world, that these new cultures, and kind of you know help them in any sort of way I can because I feel like that's the right thing to do I don't know but was, not everyone does that Zena it like, was like a little so many, bit of both I, I know so many people who who have the majors at IUT mm -hmm. but what they worry about is can I go to this country and have fun and stuff like yes we are from, we are living in the United States and there is a level of safety here right and uh, from my experience, safety built fear. Mm -hmm. For you, you had amazing parents who kind of empower you to be independent, right? The safety that you grew up in, usually for people, it builds fear like, okay, I need to stay in this, but I don't need to go. When they see risk, like, mm -hmm. I don't need to do that, right? Yeah. And there are so many people, I mean, talking about the blue pill versus the red pill, right? So many people choose to take that, that blue pill yeah. and uh, stay in that ideal world, mm -hmm. right? But to, to decide to take that red pill and go out of your safe world and find that experience that you need to grow, that takes strength. <laughs> I want to know where that strength comes from. I think strength and a little bit of naivety. Mm. It was because I was young. Mm. I still didn't fully understand what I was committing myself into, but mm. I think part of that is what helped kind of just, I don't know, blatant courage, mm. strength out of nowhere to just say, let's do it. You know, like I'm young, when else am I going to get this chance? Um, let's just do it. And I can also imagine your relationship with your mother. I mean, you guys been together for a while. She was the one that you depended on. She was the one that potentially gave you everything and more at the time that your dad could not give you some of that, right? Mm -hmm. And to have that rift, knowing knowing the potential of that rift, I'm sure it bothers you, right? It, I, I mean, you talked about that it bothers you, but 
when did you say okay like the potential of my dreams in the future is much higher than this temporal rift mm. with my parents because you knew that one of the things that many people don't understand many kids don't realize is that your parents love you no matter what mm -hmm. you can't be the worst being in this world if you compare it even to your cousin or somebody else they will love you still mm -hmm. more not because they will get hurt by the bad things that you do but at the end of the day they will never throw you away mm -hmm. because you are their own blood no matter what no matter how many kids that they raise i mean i my parents raised a lot of kids but i always know even if they will never tell me <laughs> no matter how many kids they raise mm -hmm. right they want me to be always the best out of like it's just something that parents do so many people do not realize that their parents love them that much and they realize that even if there is a temporal rift as long as they go and try to do well they're always going to come around mm -hmm. and still be okay did you know that at the time that no, <laughs> no. no uh now mm -hmm. i understood she did it out of out of love out yeah. of concern yeah. and i i know now that she loves me very deeply mm -hmm then mm -hmm. i did not and it's like why why are you saying no to my dreams mm -hmm. um to the things that i want don't you believe in me don't you believe in my vision it was selfish it was immature and i 100% think i should have handled the situation differently i should have communicated my thoughts more i should have tried to persuade her mm -hmm. more just you know even though i knew i was going i should have done more on my part to mm -hmm. convince her mm -hmm. why i want to do this and there's a level of communication to it i feel like those kind of communication is hard right yes, yeah. and when someone says something they don't mean mm -hmm. but kind of touch you the wrong way yeah. you feel like you have to i've had a similar experience there's yeah. a lot of hurt feelings yeah. um, words that i wish i could take back <sighs> At the time, I didn't know she was doing it out of love. Mm -hmm. But for me, at the end of the day, I really felt in order to be successful in medical school and to be successful in life, because it's, you know, a marathon, I really felt I needed this experience to kind of grow and mature as a person and to develop, you know, deeper thinking um, and to learn that there is a world outside. Mm. And I feel like if I wanted to be a doctor who was truly able to you know, advocate and be an ally for, for marginalized communities and vulnerable populations, I felt like I needed to experience that, to see that, mm -hmm. and to go through some personal growth. Mm -hmm. So I felt it, it was an integral part of success, mm -hmm. this Peace Corps experience. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I made the decision to go through with the the peace corps um and that's powerful that's powerful beside your vision of uh, i know you had that spark with the stethoscope earlier with your grandparent mm -hmm. and then you went through that program in high school mm -hmm. when was it like a certainty that 
I want to do medical school and I want to help population in the vulnerable community. Like, when did that come? Was there any exposure, any experience? Where did that focus come from? I don't know if there's ever been like a defining moment. Mm -hmm. I think it was a lot of different moments adding up together. Mm -hmm. I've always knew that I wanted to go into medicine. Mm -hmm. So any experience that I had in the health and medical field, mm -hmm. I think kind of helped make that more Solidify. certain. Okay. Yeah. So, um, to, well, so yeah. like shadowing, mm -hmm. um, like shadowing different surgeons and different physicians mm -hmm. and kind of seeing their interactions and their day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's something that I want to do and I could see myself doing. Mm -hmm. And I felt like there's no other more rewarding lifelong career mm -hmm. for me. So I think that's when I became more certain. But I felt like I always knew, like, mm. this is what I want and nothing else. That's amazing. 2019, you landed in uh, Morovia, right? In, yes, Roberts, Robertsport? Yeah, airport, airport yeah. in Morovia. Yeah. What was your first experience? What was that first feeling you felt in Liberia, Africa for the first time? Oh, my gosh. So we arrived super late, like mm -hmm. 11 p.m. It was dark out. Mm -hmm. Usually when you arrive at an airport mm -hmm. in the United States, it's all bright. You see bright lights everywhere, right? It was dark. Mm -hmm. Maybe like a couple lights on the runway, mm -hmm. and that was it. Mm -hmm. And because it's the airport's really small, and they don't have all of that electricity to mm -hmm. be able to you know, have all those lights on. Mm -hmm. So it was very small, mm -hmm. very different. Mm -hmm. But we were there, I think 20-something of us as a cohort. Mm -hmm. And we were like, where are we? What's happening? There were no like adults, mm -hmm. adult adults. Mm -hmm. So it was just the cohort people, people around my age, maybe a few years older. We were all a little lost and confused. But we came down, we saw our first Liberian staff, our Peace Corps staff, mm -hmm. and he was wearing this Peace Corps Liberia shirt. Mm -hmm. He was wearing, waving these Liberian flags, and mm -hmm. he was telling us, welcome home. Mm -hmm. And that was such an amazing experience mm -hmm. to finally land, meet a Liberian, and for them to be so like welcoming and excited for mm -hmm. us, I think it just kind of spread the positive energy. Mm -hmm. And we were just welcomed into this big van, got mm -hmm. our luggage, and we went straight to the training center. Mm -hmm. um, and the training center is actually in Kakata. Mm -hmm. So it was like a, a drive, 40-50 minute drive to Kakata. Okay. And once we arrived, we had this amazing Liberian chef mm -hmm. cook these amazing meals. <laughs> like we had potato salad and barbecue and, and rice with Liberian soup. It was a feast. Wow. Amazing. This is like 2 a.m. in the morning. Wow. Still hungry. Still hungry. We're just so excited. And then the next morning at 8 a.m. we had our first day of training. Mm -hmm. So it was it was amazing. Our first experience, or my first night in Liberia. Mm -hmm. We were all excited. Everybody had their own uh, place to stay or did you stay in a hostel? Oh, so in the training center, mm -hmm. it's by the way, big and beautiful and spacious. Wow. I think it's one of the best training centers of all Peace Corps, mm -hmm. considering we're in a, a small country. Mm -hmm. um, 
our training center was very spacious. Mm-hmm. We had running water, mm-hmm. you know, showers. Mm-hmm. We had Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. We had kind of like a bunk bed system. Um, so very like college dorm style, mm-hmm. guys and girls. Uh, we had a kitchen. Mm-hmm. We had a separate conference center where we do our daily trainings. Mm-hmm. I think from eight to five every day for mm-hmm. three months. Um, we had like a little garden. We had a little like soccer field um, mm-hmm. where we did like soccer matches <laughs> yeah. with the Liberian staff. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty spacious That's training good. center. Did you play soccer before that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's good. What was the work? What was the main focus of your work there? The main focus was integration. So mm. that was the overall goal. And part of that was learning the culture, the history behind Liberia, mm-hmm. the two civil wars, um, learning the different dialects mm-hmm. of Liberia. So there are 16 tribes, and each tribe has its own dialect. Mm. And so... In Kakata, um, we would be learning how to speak a specific dialect, but we knew that once we got assigned to our permanent places, mm-hmm. it could be a different dialect mm-hmm. that we had to learn. But kind of starting to learn and understand how Liberian people speak uh, was crucial mm-hmm. because they speak English, but they have their own kind of intonation. Mm-hmm. They use special words. Um, for specific things. Mm-hmm. So we had to learn that to be able to grow closer to the community. Mm-hmm. To be um, part of it, to feel right. part of it. So uh, learning the culture, the history, the dialect, eating the good food mm-hmm. was big. Um, oh, that was no trouble, right? <laughs> no trouble. It was amazing, amazing food. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of us were there to teach. Mm-hmm. So teaching us how to be good teachers. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to teach health, mm-hmm. um, so sexual reproductive health is a big part of my passion. So learning how to teach that in a culturally respectful way mm-hmm. while getting the message across um, was, a, was an experience. Mm-hmm. So we got to learn how to teach, be good teachers, how to give good feedback, um, how to make relationships and mm-hmm. communicate. How long it took you before you left the training center and went to the place where you were supposed to teach? Oh, I mean, so I think after the first couple of weeks, mm-hmm. they assigned us to a host family in Kakata. Mm-hmm. So we would live there. We would like sleep there. And we would have to walk to the training, training center every morning mm-hmm. and walk back in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of helped with the integration process. Mm-hmm. After three months we um, did like this official ceremony where we kind of graduated mm-hmm. from being trainees mm-hmm. to official volunteers mm-hmm. and then we were given our permanent sites wow. and then we were told where to go mm-hmm. so I told them I wanted to be in a big city mm-hmm. I wanted I was comfortable with being with teaching lots of kids mm-hmm. for me many kids was probably like 30 mm-hmm. 40 max Little did I know I would be teaching about 90 students in one classroom. I was teaching the seventh grade and there's three sections, A, B, and C. And in each section, there's like 90 students. Mm. That was an experience. Um, Having to grade all those tests, (laughs) you know, teach 
because Liberian schools don't have windows. Mm -hmm. They don't have AC. Mm -hmm. It's literally just like walls and they have an open space for a yeah, window. Because of the lack of AC, it's good to have it open so right. at least you get some air, yeah. The only problem is Liberia is in the equator. Mm. So it's divided into dry season and mm. rainy season. Yep, same as Guinea. Right. So in the dry season, you have the sun shining. So on the blackboard, you have this huge glare and kids can't see anything. Yeah. During the rainy season, it's so loud. You can't hear the students. The students can't hear <laughs> me. It's a struggle. Yeah. So it was always figuring out like different creative ways to teach. Yeah. So that they stay engaged and I get to, you know, teach all of my lessons. That's a big point. Oh then you, you you just come up with a couple of big points. First of all, the the host people, exp talk a little bit about that how they welcomed you cuz yeah, how did they welcome you? What was that uh, dynamic like with your host family? So Liberians love Americans mm -hmm. and it's very interesting and ironic mm -hmm. because of our, our history mm -hmm. but I guess it's because we've always kind of been there to help Liberians um, humanitarian aid financial aid so they really welcomed us with open arms mm -hmm. and Liberians love to give they give they I think it's a big African thing like the idea of hosting mm -hmm. of, of making sure that no matter who you are, when you're walking through, through my doors, you're going to be taken care of, right? Mm -hmm. I always tell my friends when we go to Guinea, the two things you don't have to worry about, food and a place to, to stay, mm -hmm. right? That's yeah. something that's going to be given to you free, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a big part of the community. It is. And it was our privilege as an American to feel that welcome, mm -hmm. to feel that hospitality they would always have food you know liberians they don't have much they really don't but whatever they do have they want to share mm -hmm. they want to make sure that you're taken care yeah. of so my host family i mean they made amazing liberian food mm -hmm. that i learned to cook mm -hmm. from a coal pot that yeah. was an experience too yeah um from scratch you know it takes three hours to cook mm -hmm. from a coal pot yeah it's a day thing it's a day event. it's a day <laughs> event you have everybody helping um they taught me like how to wash clothes mm -hmm. using like a washboard oh yeah um, and to hang it up i in can the teach sun. you that too i can show you that <laughs> <laughs> i'm so good yeah um and going to the market mm to find good deals because mm -hmm. sometimes they see me, they know I'm not Liberian, mm -hmm. they will try to charge me more. Mm -hmm. um, and so my family was like, you know, Zina, you have to just go go in there mm -hmm. and be like, I'm a Liberian, I know Liberian prices, why are you trying to eat my eyeball sort of thing. And so they taught me to to, to say things and to, to be more Liberian mm -hmm. um, and, and I love that. That's amazing, that's amazing. And uh, I feel like is that there was this story about uh, this person who, who didn't have anything and uh, all he had was one chicken. I mean, all his other animals that he was raising had died from this specific thing and he only had one chicken left. Then he received this guest, right? And uh, he decided to kill that chicken so they can all eat it. Yeah. Uh, right? uh, people don't realize this, but the people that have less are the ones who are willing to give more <laughs> than the people that have too much. Mm -hmm. It's it's a different 
uh, community in, in Liberia. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Like, despite all the hardships, they are so positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're always saying, like, it's going to be better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Let's be happy with what we have. And so that kind of mindset really grew on me. And yeah. I feel like that's one of the big learning points um, that I took away from the Peace Corps. That's amazing. You talked about the uh, struggle in the classroom. I actually, from first grade to sixth grade, I that was the kind of classrooms that I was in, right? Where, I mean, if it's raining, it's too loud. If it's uh, sunny, it's too. Yeah. Uh, and many, many, many teachers usually uh, they they see that as a challenge that they don't have a control of, right? This is just what's going on. So, but. You talked about coming up with creative ways to still make sure that the kids stay engaged and still do your job that you came to do. How did you do that? What are some examples of creative things that you did? Oh, we have to be adaptive. Um, sometimes I would have students like act out uh, what they've learned and, and uh, like the science concepts that we were doing, like with photosynthesis, I gave them all like roles to play and so they would be acting it out and kind of describing the process so even if you couldn't hear at least you could see See? yeah and we didn't have materials like construction paper markers these are things you can get anywhere here Mm -hmm. but it's so expensive in Liberia and it's just not available yeah all they have are these notebook papers Mm -hmm. and pencils so with those notebook papers like we would like I love origami, so I would teach them how to like make trees and like mm-hmm. flowers and you know animals, and kind of uh, try to have like an interactive part to the learning process, mm-hmm. so they're able to like have fun and stay involved and hopefully like more information will stick. But a big challenge was going through the curriculum. Mm. I had students. Uh, miss school for weeks um, for various reasons I had certain students not like afford the tuition so they were physically removed from the school and they would come back weeks later and miss months of material Mm -hmm. those are some things that I just had to let go Mm -hmm. Um, I could be upset about it but like that wasn't gonna Mm -hmm. that was gonna help but I think the main point was for me to be able to teach whatever material I could mm-hmm. in a way that they could understand mm-hmm. and find fun. So with science specifically, there's lots of science experiments mm-hmm. that you can do um, using cheap local materials. So my favorite was the pH mm-hmm. acid-base experiment mm-hmm. <laughs> because you can do that with like some iodine, uh, some potatoes mm. and some bread flour mm. and those are like easy local ingredients mm. that you can use to demonstrate acid-base pH wow. and those students were teaching their siblings and their siblings and their friends yeah. and they would come back like weeks later saying like oh Mazina, I taught this experiment to my friend and my friend goes to this school so they didn't know what you know I was talking about mm. so I got to teach them and I was like that's amazing that's a good teaching experience for me and for them. So, I mean, I love Mrs. that. Mrs. Zina, I'm just imagining <laughs> you. <laughs> I had so many students come up to me. Wow. Like, I'm Zina, sure they Zina. loved you. They uh, 
<laughs> I love them. Wow. And with Liberia, mm -hmm. there is no like school and house. Mm -hmm. It's like all one community. Mm -hmm. So I would have students after school, I would invite them like to my house mm -hmm. and we would have like cooking sessions mm -hmm. where I would teach them about like you know, when we crack eggs, mm. we talk about, you know, proteins breaking down. So kind of integrating lessons in cooking lessons wow. and kind of teaching them even outside the classroom because for them, I feel like every moment mm. where they could learn, they appreciated it. Wow. They wanted to learn so badly. So I felt like the short time that I was there, I wanted to teach as much as I could to as many as I could. Wow. So and people don't realize that, I mean, in many, in these underserved communities where there's no opportunities, like, there are a lot of people who are willing to learn who are very smart, but of course won't get opportunities that many people have, mm -hmm. right? I remember when I got here to the United States, uh, I mean, in high school, from high school, I was like, wow, I'm motivated, like, all of this, mm -hmm. I, I don't have a soccer field in there over there, I don't have, I get to do all of this, and mm -hmm. when I got to college, all the opportunities that I see uh, in this school, I'm like, I need to, t I need to say yes to every single thing, right? Mm -hmm. And many people do not realize that there's different challenges, right? For some people, it's lack of opportunity. There is a lot of ambition. For other people, there is a lot of opportunities, but there's no ambition. Mm -hmm. It's a different thing. That's amazing. I feel like we can talk about this for years. Like, so COVID nineteen happened. Mm -hmm. What was the process? You have to hurry up and get out? Yeah, uh, so we were tracking this with as the rest of the world was um, with the CDC. We were saying, oh, we have the first case happen in Nigeria. Mm. We we're like, okay, Nigeria is like a little far. Uh -huh. It's okay. It wasn't real until we had um, our first case in Senegal. Mm. No, close. sorry, not Senegal, um, Guinea. That's, Guinea's that's right. very close. It's right there. Mm -hmm. And we were like, oh no. Mm -hmm. Is it coming to Liberia? But even if it did, like maybe a few weeks and everything would be okay. Mm -hmm. like, and, and we didn't know at the time that COVID is not here really. Right. I mean, and even our Peace Corps medical officers were saying, oh, it's just like a cold. It's going to go away. Mm -hmm. It's not a big thing. But then the Peace Corps director. Mm -hmm called all of us mm -hmm. all the volunteers left in the country to monrovia mm -hmm. so we went and she said okay this is what's happening in the world if you feel unsafe and you want to go back home you can't but you're not forced to mm -hmm. um, peace corps liberia is still here we're still going to volunteer no worries that's leadership and so all of us decided to stay because of course we didn't want to go but we had heard that other peace corps volunteers in different countries mm. were flying back home mm. less than 24 hours later our peace corps director sends us another message saying the united states government has officially declared all peace corps posts are being evacuated mm. due to covid mm. we as volunteers have less than 48 hours to go back to our site, pack, say goodbyes, and come back because we're flying out. Uh, I don't think we processed that 
we were kind of still looking at it, saying like, what do you mean the United States government is evacuating all of us? Like, can we not choose to stay? And what do you mean 48 hours? We only have 48 hours to go back and pack and say goodbye. Uh, so I went back to my site. The Liberians themselves didn't really understand how severe COVID was getting. And for me, as an American volunteer who came here to help and, and do service, I felt very weird being able to have that choice to like go back to my own country and get vaccinated when I knew the Liberians here would not be given that choice. Like they would not be able to get vaccinated. They would not be receiving any sort of help in the near future, mm. but I could. I could go back home and mm. I could get vaccinated and I could be in the safety of, of my family. But I felt like we were kind of deserting them and running back. Mm -hmm. And that was very painful for me to be able to be doing that mm. when I knew all the Liberians, they were worried. If the American volunteers go back home, when are they coming back? Mm -hmm. Are they coming back? There was a time during the Civil War and Ebola when the Peace Corps post in Liberia shut down. And when a site shuts down like that, it doesn't get open mm -hmm. till like maybe five years after because there's a whole like series of evaluations that the United States government has to do to make sure it's safe mm. and okay for the volunteers. So we didn't know, they didn't know if Americans would ever be coming back to Liberia. Wow. So it was tough. What was those goodbyes like? They weren't goodbyes, they were, they were more like, I'll come back. Mm -hmm. Like this is temporary. Like mm. this isn't a goodbye. This is like a see you later sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'll be like, and I said, as soon as Peace Corps Liberia opens again, I'll be back mm. on a plane. Like you'll see me here in a few months, I promise. Um, so we didn't say goodbye. We were saying, you know, be see safe. See you later. See you later. Mm. And then the see you later has now been two years mm -hmm. almost. A year, a year and a half, um, and it's still not open. They're trying to open up a new batch of volunteers, mm -hmm. um, but we don't know if it's going to happen for sure. Are you planning to? <laughs> Unfortunately, no, fortunately, I am in medical school. Unfortunately, the timing. There could be projects. Doesn't work, but we I'm, could do. I'm hoping. Global surgery. I'm hoping. <laughs> maybe third year, fourth year, if mm. we have a chance to do some away projects or away rotations, it would be really nice to be able to kind of go back and offer a different type of, of skill and service to them. Um, yeah, that'd be really amazing. We got some ideas I wanna to talk to you about. That's good. <laughs> nice. That's good, that's amazing. Wow, that's, uh, that's rough. That is rough and uh, I've definitely seen that before, the idea of having people helping and then and then things happen and then they have to leave, mm -hmm. right? 
I've seen the, some pain and suffering that people have to go through because of that kind of reliance. Yeah. That's big. So you, you, you got back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. and then we were like, oh shoot, I'm not ready for medical school. I need to still do stuff. Oh, like, so I still thought Peace Corps would open back up. Yeah. So until then, I was like, well, what can I do in the United States? Because it was like the peak of COVID, everything was closed. Um, luckily, I got a job at this nonprofit organization in mm -hmm. California, um, and I was able to work there, um, save up money, and it was in California, so beautiful weather, beautiful scenery, beaches, and it actually worked very nicely. Mm -hmm. um, since California was a little bit more like kind of calm mm -hmm. about the situation like we were still pretty safe wearing masks um, but I still I felt like I could breathe better in California than in Texas mm -hmm. um, so I got to kind of experience uh, the Bay Area mm -hmm. for about a year during that time though was when I was applying to medical school I had to take the MCAT again because it had expired. Mm -hmm. so that was hard. Uh, Working a full-time job and then like having to make time to like study and um, write these applications, write these essays, and do the secondaries. That's crazy. That was rough. Many people don't know that. It, I, I've tried that before. I remember in 2018 and it didn't work. That's crazy. It's hard. That's, man, people don't know. I feel like the journey that medical students have to take to get to medical school can be a whole TV show. <laughs> Honestly, we could each have our own. I'm gonna put it out there. Somebody to Netflix make a make it. a all American TV show with, with just medical students. It, it's it's crazy. And all that time, you still you're trying to fix the situation with your parents, right? Mm -hmm. Were you talking to your dad at the time? Yeah. He was good. He was like, "Don't worry, she she gonna get around." <laughs> He's, he was helping. Yeah. That's amazing. So you went through the process of medical school applications, and we're not even going to dig deep into how crazy that was. I know it was crazy. Yeah. But talk about that journey and the acceptances. Like, where did you apply? Mm -hmm. What was your man mindset in choosing schools and all of that? So I think uh, having to do all of that mm -hmm. while working, mm -hmm kind of actually solidified or I guess really kind of lit a fire mm -hmm. because like I couldn't do this again if you told me I had to do this all over again I don't know if I could mm -hmm. so I was like this is my chance mm -hmm. let me focus and do everything like all that I can do I'll do it mm -hmm. and so May was May was hard because mm -hmm. I think applications open in June no, May 13 or something for TMDSAS, I think, 13 okay. or 17. Okay. So as soon as it opened, I turned it in, um, did all of my secondaries quick. The only problem was, back then, I didn't know mm -hmm. that I would be doing my interviews mm -hmm. in Liberia mm -hmm. because I went back mm -hmm. the second time, not as a Peace Corps volunteer because it was closed, but as um, working with the U.S. Embassy, the American International School, um, to be a teacher. So, all... What was that? What was... 
Oh, uh, so that was... So I wanted to go back to Liberia mm. because I felt like I didn't finish my 27 months of service. I only finished like a year. So I wanted to go back um, and do another year in Liberia so that I could say that I did two years. What you promised. What I promised. Um, and I was having a gap year anyway because of the, the medical school application process. I was like, I'm going to have another gap year to spend. Would I want to spend it in America? Or if I could, I would like to go back to Liberia and do something. Mm -hmm. And so I got a job. I was like, yes, I have my housing paid for. Um, I could like save up money. So I decided to go back. And this time it's like an, a proper paying job so mm -hmm. I could actually save money. Um, so I was there working as a teacher. August. Same place or no? Um, different place. So this was in Monrovia. It was at the international school. Wow. So I was there from August to May. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I was in Liberia. I was also doing interviews for medical school. Wow. It was Zena. so hard because the internet is not great. So I remember Dell was my first interview. I think the interview, I had scheduled it for like late August. The only problem was that was my like flight out to the, from the United States to Liberia. Mm -hmm. So the day after I arrived in country was my interview with Dell Medical School. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there was a, a delay in Chicago mm -hmm. airport. That was one of my layovers. And because that got delayed, my flight to Liberia got delayed. So I emailed, I think it was Gabby, and I was like, I'm so sorry, I don't think I'm gonna make it. Can I have another interview date? I'm so sorry. I was like crying and like so nervous. And she was like, no problem. We can schedule another interview date. And so it was September was the, the next interview date. So it was September, I had like practiced for it. There's a time zone difference. So I think 8 a.m. here was around 5 p.m., 6 p.m. in Liberia, so it was like dinner time. Um, so I was in my classroom. So you had to go from 6 p.m. to like 2 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like getting ready in my classroom because it had the most stable internet connection, mm -hmm. but I was already like a few minutes in and it was glitching. Mm -hmm. and I remember in my team interview, my mic wasn't working or it was lagging, so you couldn't hear me properly. And then during the MMIs, I remember uh, my internet like shut off, so I completely missed like two MMI sections. I was crying, I was a mess. I was like, Adele's not for me. It was a good first try, but wow. I, I was like... People need to know about this story. Many people, many people think that as a medical student, you have to be perfect. You have to appear perfect oh to get in. But many people do not realize, at least for their medical, many people do not realize that all you need to do is to be yourself. You want to be caught, you want to be caught, you want to be caught in excellence, right? Mm -hmm. No matter what, having an interview in that situation mm -hmm. where you were doing what you were very passionate mm -hmm. yes you were struggling hard but no one who learned about what you were doing 
gonna second guess that you were doing something that you were passionate about mm-hmm. you were doing something that was meaningful you were doing something that you were believing and no matter how bad the interview was that <laughs> was enough that was enough i feel like for you and many people mm-hmm. want to go ahead say what you say but i really believe that sometimes it's better for you to be caught in moments where you are in your own clothes mm-hmm. than in moments where you were in someone else's clothes mm-hmm. while doing something that you don't believe in yeah i think maybe that's what saved me mm-hmm. um, i remember my interview with the, the faculty member and that was the one interview where like it went perfect like the internet was great i could hear everything mm-hmm. he could see me um, and I think we got into a really good conversation of, of my passion and my time in Liberia. And I totally bombed the other two interviews. I'm sure he's the one who went and but, fought for you. But that one interview, I think, really saved me. I can't imagine him like, she's in Liberia. She don't have internet. You guys better put her in there. She's going to fight. I'm sure he advocated for me. Because the other two, I I felt horrible after the interview was done. I I told my friends, I didn't get it. Dell was not gonna happen for me, and it was like my number one dream school. Mm. So it was like extra devastating. Um, but I was like, it's okay. Like mm-hmm. it, it wasn't meant for me. I let's just like try harder with my other interviews. That's one thing I really love about Dell Medical School and the vision, right? They have the vision of redefining the way care is being provided, state of Texas, or to to educate a new kind of physician. Mm-hmm. And one of the amazing things that they do is to go out around the world and find amazing people with amazing experiences and passions mm-hmm. and get them to this school. Mm-hmm. One way they do that is they figure out a way to create this interview system that's gonna capture the people who are their true self, right? One thing they are good at is, I think, I think, maybe not everyone, they can be perfect, but they are very good at finding the people who are really true to themselves, mm-hmm. right? And bringing them to the table, right? And that's powerful because many people, many there are so many college students out there. Their question, their main priority question is, what can I do to be able to get into this school? What can I do to look good? Mm-hmm. But sometimes that's not the question, right? Mm-hmm. It's how can I figure out what I'm really passionate about? How can I figure out to get my best self out? Mm-hmm. And I feel like everything you are doing, following your interests since high school, right? In undergrad following your interest and then trying to go get your dream realizing that you don't really need to be a doctor to start making an impact you mm-hmm. can do it earlier yeah. feel like all that enable you to bring out your best self and no matter what when people see your best self people are gonna come to you you don't have <laughs> to go to them <laughs> maybe yeah. It was, yeah that was my big picture yeah all along. That, that, that's amazing you are Adele now. I am. I still don't believe it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. I'm still waiting to know. Hey, it's a mistake. Let's get you out of it. But it was interesting when I read Dell's uh, mission statement mm-hmm. and vision. You know when you read something and you feel like this is me? That's me. And you 
feel this connection and do you feel like this is everything that I believe in and this would be perfect for me? I felt that with Dell, like as soon as I read the mission statement. And I didn't feel this way a couple years back mm -hmm. um, when I was like a junior, senior, because I think Dell was still new at the time. And I was like, okay, I kind of see what they're trying to say, but it doesn't like really resonate with me. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until after the Peace Corps experience and I had this growth where I reread the mission statement and I felt like that's so true, that's so important and that's everything that I believe in and I value and I feel like we are a really good match. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting how life takes you to all these places and you learn so much more about yourself and you and you grow and you come back and you like look at the same thing in a different perspective in a different light. So I think Dell does a really good job of um, selecting students that have taken gap years mm -hmm. to kind of have that time of growth and maturity um, because I think it's so important for every one of us to have that growth mm -hmm. and kind of self journey um, to be able to make that realization for ourselves and for me it didn't come until a few years later mm -hmm. for some it can come earlier for some it can take more mm -hmm. um, but I think it's so important for me um, because it kind of defines how I look at the rest of my my life mm -hmm. and the rest of my career wow. so I'm very thankful of my Peace Corps experience and I would do it all over again if I had to uh, you'll do it that's amazing and uh, I've been reading this book one thing it talks about is the idea of motion versus action mm -hmm. uh, many people get into motion thinking they are getting somewhere but there's a big difference between motion and action. Motion is really just moving, mm -hmm. but action allows you to go to an end goal. Yeah. Right? And uh, you took definitely a lot of actions that kind of build you into a human being with so much more potential. Right? That I feel like your love for service and then the your strength to take the action you needed to take to to go and 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 get more of that experience mm -hmm. not everybody has that and because of all that experience you have a good foundation with the education with the medical education that's coming alone to really be one of the most impactful people in the world in the future right and the world need that Right. Yes, we are medical student right now, but there is so much work out there that we are expected to be doing in the future. Mm -hmm. right? And uh, the kind of work that we have to do, it is so hard that it's going to require so much service, passion, and strength to be able to take actions that many people don't dare taking or many people don't want you to take. Mm -hmm. Right. What are some of the things that you are hoping to do uh, in the in the future, like long term, right? Because yeah. I'm sure that experience that you had in Liberia is something that sometimes you launch for, yeah. sometimes you think about, mm -hmm. like how how are you planning to bring that in uh, in the future as a global impactor? Wow. Uh, good question. 
I think doing the Peace Corps service opened my eyes up to global service. Mm -hmm. And with the medical knowledge and skill that I'm going to learn at Dell, eventually I do want to do foreign service abroad. Um, maybe traveling country to country mm. and doing some sort of that service. But I also have big passion in health policy. So um, I worked with the, the Liberian uh, Ministry of Health in kind of reorganizing their health infrastructure and delivery systems so that people in rural homes, they have access to community health mm -hmm. and preventable health um, vaccines. So I would like to do some work in global health policy where I'm able to kind of bridge the health and medicine to the vulnerable and marginalized communities. Mm. So, because I believe healthcare is the basic human right. Yeah. Um, and working with nonprofits like Last Mile Health and Planned Parenthood, it kind of really opened my eyes to that in inequality that we have, the gap. So, not really sure what I want to do, but definitely something in, in health policy and global service, working in teams mm -hmm. um, and kind of developing these new healthcare infrastructures that deliver better quality health, that's sustainable, um, especially in countries where you need it the most. So I don't know if my work will kind of keep me in the United States. I definitely do want to go and travel and do some of that work abroad. Mm -hmm. um, but you still can have a home in Texas. I, but I can still have a home. I don't know if it's going to be in Texas. <laughs> but um, I've also learned like family is very important. Mm -hmm. um, so somewhere where I can you know, also be with family. Um, yeah, that would be nice. That is amazing. I can't spend so much time talking to you and digging deeper through your story and just learning more. There's so much, so I many know. stories of, of Liberia I would so like to share. So many things, so many things. But we can, we, I'm definitely, you're definitely going to come back. And the podcast <laughs> one of these days. Maybe after MNS, yeah. and after I survive this block. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for the time, for taking the time to come and share some of your story. And just being amazing, being you. Thank Keep shining. Oh. Thank you so much for taking your time and listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you feel like this episode has helped you in any way, share it with a friend, family, or loved one.